Remember last Lord's Day, we talked about the first four verses of the book of Romans. I would like to uh, continue this Lord's Day with a portion of that that we really did not cover. Uh, but first, we'll review a little bit. Uh, Rome is, of course, located about halfway down the boot of Italy on the uh, west side, west coast. Um, if you look at uh, the 15th chapter of the book of Romans briefly, <clears throat> and try to situate Paul's writing of this book, the circumstances under which he wrote. Um, verse 22 of chapter 15, for this reason I also had been much hindered from coming to you. Now, if, you, if we had time to read back the reasons why, it's mainly because he'd been occupied with preaching the gospel all around the Mediterranean area to people who had not heard the gospel before. Now, the Romans obviously had heard the gospel before, so it was not Paul's priority to go to Rome. It was his priority to go to Spain, where the gospel had not been preached before. But as he says here, he wants to visit Rome on the way. He says, for this reason I also have been much, bothered, much hindered from coming to you. But now, no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. So when Paul wrote this letter, it was approximately 56 to 57 AD, and uh Pretty much all the scholars all agreed on that. And uh, he was on his way when he wrote the letter to Jerusalem to take an offering for the saints in Jerusalem, an offering from the Gentile churches that he had established to the saints in Jerusalem. And uh, in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, we don't have to turn there, but he stops for three months in Greece, probably in Corinth, it doesn't say for sure. And it was likely from that point during those three months that he wrote the book of Romans. So let's read the first four verses of Romans 1 again. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Now he pointed out that almost the whole of Romans is about the gospel, defending the gospel. But the opening of the book tells us about three things concerning the gospel. Number one, it was promised by God in the Old Testament. And you recall we read Jeremiah chapter 31. Uh, I might just 
turn there again. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now this is the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, although there were people who were redeemed and who had the Holy Spirit, the the picture we get in the Old Testament is of the Israelite people, who were God's people, and they had this external law that they tried to conform with. <laughs> and they had just practically no success at all. But God says under the new covenant, what's he going to do? He's going to put his law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And this is the difference. The Christian is not perfect. And he does sin, but he has the law of God written in his heart. And there's a difference. And so with the Christian, there's a difference between him or her and the world. And it's not based upon their works. It's not based upon their efforts. But um, their salvation is only through faith in Christ, but once they believe on Christ, they're a new creature. And old things have passed away and all things have become new. So that's um, the first point. The gospel was promised in the Old Testament before by his prophets in in the Holy Scriptures. And the second thing, it concerns God's Son. And we pointed out a couple of passages in the Old Testament where God beforehand talks about His Son. In the Psalm 2, Psalm 45. And then the third thing was that God's Son was declared to be God's Son by the resurrection. And we looked at several of the resurrection appearances in the Gospels. And then we ask the question, and I'm going to go over this again because I think it's important that we get this in mind. We ask the question, although this is what the apostles say that they saw, how do we know that they saw it? How do we know that they were speaking the truth when they testified that Christ was raised from the dead and they had seen him alive under many different circumstances, they'd even eaten with him. How do we know that they were telling the truth? And I gave two reasons. First reason is that their testimony 
to the resurrection was subjected to something far better than a rigorous cross-examination. And the second, because of the inherent nature of their testimony. And I'm going to explain those two things. So, we said that Paul spent 18 months at Corinth. Um, we're going to look, you might as well turn to it now. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And as a background, Paul had spent 18 months at Corinth. So, the people came to know him intimately. How do we know he spent 18 months at Corinth? Because the book of Acts tells us about that. But they came knowing well. And they also knew some of the other apostles and they knew about the apostles by reputation. Now look at what Paul wrote to the Corinthians some three and a half years after he had been at Corinth. This is when the book of 1 Corinthians was written. Three and a half years after he had been 18 months at Corinth. Look at what he says, beginning with uh, verse 9. For I think that God has displayed us the apostles last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dis- dishonored. To the present hour we both hunger and thirst and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Now, the reason I'm quoting this passage is for a different reason from, from what Paul wrote it. So I'm taking it out of context. But it is a legitimate taking out of context. I'm going to show you why. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we have a similar passage. Beginning with verse 22. And again, it's taken out of context. It's not The reason I'm quoting it is not the same reason that Paul quoted it. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times received I forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. 
Now, the question is, how could Paul write that to a group of people who knew him if it was not true? In other words, this really was the way the apostles lived. They weren't living high on the hog. They weren't um, benefiting from the testimony that they were giving to the fact that they had seen Christ alive after he was crucified. In fact, just the opposite. They were enduring hardship, extreme hardship. And eventually, uh, history tells us that they all were martyred. They all received death, and yet none of them ever backed down from their testimony that they had seen the risen Christ. Now, the second thing is that we need to consider the nature of the testimony that uh, the apostles gave to the resurrection. And I gave you this illustration. And I think it's I think it's a good illustration. Let's suppose that it's the year 1900. What is that 122 years ago? It's the year. 1900, and you're walking down the street of Greenwood, and there sitting out in front of the general store in a cane-back chair is this old Confederate colonel, and he's holding forth to his friends, his cronies, and he's saying, you know, I was, uh, I was on the staff of the general that served uh, Jefferson Davis. And furthermore, I knew Jefferson Davis, and I used to have walks with him, long conversations with him. That's the first thing he says. And the second thing he says is, and furthermore, the Confederacy was right, and Jefferson Davis was right. Now, think about this. Two different things he's saying. Number one, he's saying he knew Jefferson Davis, he walked with him and talked with him. The other thing he's saying is, Jefferson Davis was right about rebelling against the, the uh, United States. And the South was right to rebel against the United States. You see the difference between those two things? Let's suppose the colonel was sincere in everything he said. He sincerely believed that he had walked and talked with Jefferson Davis. And he sincerely believed that the South was right. His sincerity goes a long way toward proving that he did talk and walk with Jefferson Davis. But his sincerity does nothing to prove that the South was right. So, when we think about the sincerity of the apostles, and we have to admit they were sincere. I mean, why would they have endured all that they endured um, if they weren't sincere? Now, if all they were saying, if all the apostles were saying was, look, here's this new philosophy that we have to teach you, that we ought to love our neighbors. That's our new philosophy. And they're sincere about that. That sincerity doesn't really prove that they're right about loving your neighbors. But what were they saying, basically? 
I mean, they did say God loved the neighbors, but they were basically saying, we saw Jesus Christ alive after he was crucified. And that sincerity, if they really believed that, goes a long way toward establishing the truth of what they were saying. In fact, when you put the testimony of all the apostles together, and you consider all that they said about it, I think we arrive at a certainty that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Now, the thing that we omitted last Lord's Day was to talk about, let me turn back to, uh, to Romans, talk about the uh, part of verse 3 where it says that the gospel concerns God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Isaiah 11. Excuse me, verses 1 to 10. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Now, this word rod means a shoot. Um, we have this plant in a great big pot out on our sun porch. And uh, it's been there forever. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you, at least 10 years, probably 20 years. And uh, at one point, Somebody, because it just grows like crazy, somebody, and it grows so fast and so high that the, the uh, trunks just fall over, you know, and break. So somebody just cut it off at the base. I mean, there was like two inches left. And, uh, I figured we'd have to take it out and throw it away, but in a month or two, here comes these little shoots out from the stump. And now it's as big as it ever was. It's got two great big branches and you have to prop one branch against the table over here and one branch against the wall over here. But um, this is what Isaiah is talking about. A shoot from the stem of Jesse or the stump of Jesse, the stock or trunk of Jesse. It shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his Lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. 
For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, we see here in this passage something that is frequent in the prophecies of the Old Testament. You see a conjoining together of the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And you don't see any distinction between the two. They just sort of run together. And this is one of the reasons why the Jews of Christ's day were expecting a a, a Savior who would deliver them from Rome, set up a great kingdom. But um, notice verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now Jesse was the father of David. So this root of Jesse, this this uh, rod or shoot springing forth from the stump of Jesse um, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, <clears throat> really another way that we ought to look at this uh, verse 10 is that the stump of Jesse or the root of Jesse had for hundreds and hundreds of years been cold. I mean, there was no longer a king sitting upon the throne of Israel. And even before that, before the last king of Israel was carried away into captivity, uh, the the uh, throne of Israel had become degraded and insignificant. And so, in the time of Christ, I mean, not many people even knew who the descendants of Jesse was or were. And we have in that day a root of Jesse springs forth and stands as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, He was born of David, born of the seed of David according to the flesh. <clears throat> and um, we know that he was a man. Let's look at Second uh, John verse seven. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And then uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime 
subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So, clearly Jesus was a man, and as the author of Hebrews tells us, it was necessary that he be a man uh, in order to share our infirmities, yet without sin. And so we see the whole panorama of the virgin birth, born to the Virgin Mary, a real child, a real man, who, you know, grew up with his parents and uh, walked the dusty roads of Palestine and was clearly a man. But in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, uh, we can look at that again. We see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So clearly the Scriptures teach that Christ was God. Notice here, this is a little rabbit trail perhaps. Uh, the Word was with God. Now that requires that there be a distinction between the Word and God, doesn't it? But then it says the Word was God. That requires that there be an identity between the Word and God. Now we know from the rest of this chapter that the Word is Christ. So this is saying that the Word was with God, meaning there has to be a distinction. And it says the Word was God, meaning an identity. So what we have here is the Trinity. Now, the with God and the was God are not just two different ways of saying the same thing. That's important to understand. There is an eternal distinction between the persons of the Trinity. But the persons of the Trinity are all of one essence. They are united and they have the same essence. They are all God. <coughs> now, another little rabbit trail we can go down here, which is interesting since we own um, <coughs> John chapter 1. If you ever uh, encounter Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll take this uh, passage, which is a real problem for them, and they'll say it's mistranslated. It's supposed to be, according to them, the word was a God. How do you deal with that? Well, of course, you can cite authorities, you know, eminent authorities on Greek. In fact, the most eminent authority of the 20th century, Bruce Metzger, did a whole paper 
of refuting the Jehovah's Witnesses' translation of this. But um, there are other ways that we can defeat that argument. If you look back at the book of Isaiah again, chapter 43, This chapter 43, verse 10, is the Jehovah's Witnesses' foundational passage of Scripture. This is what they cite more than anything else. And they think it's just glorious proof of their position that Jesus was a God and uh, that there is only one true God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit is an influence. Not really God at all. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. That's where they get their name, Jehovah's Witnesses. And the term for Lord there really is Jehovah. So they're right thus far. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen. Oh, the servant seems to be a witness too. That you may know and believe me and understand I am he, before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. Wait a minute. They say that Jesus was a God, a created God. But their, their foundational passage says that before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. So how do they get away with calling Jesus a God? It's a direct contradiction of their foundational passage. Now you can go across the page to Isaiah chapter 44 and we have another problem <coughs> with the Jehovah's Witnesses' view on this. Uh, chapter 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. I am the first and I am the last. Well, let's turn to the book of Revelation and look at chapter 1, verse 17. And John is relating his vision of Christ. He says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he said, But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. So Jesus claims to be the first and the last. And over here in Isaiah chapter 44, the Lord, meaning Jehovah, claims to be the first and the last. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Okay, I won't charge you for that little detour. <clears throat> so, how do we bring these two facts that Christ was man and God together? Because He was both. He was both man and God. Well, it's a difficult subject to think about in a lot of ways. And the church has dealt with this problem in the past. One of the earliest heresies 
that the church had to deal with was called docetism. Docetism is from a Greek word that means to appear or to sing. So docetism taught that Jesus only appeared to be a man. He was really God. He only appeared to be a man. And docetism became a part of Gnosticism, spelled with a, a G, G is silent, meaning from gnosis or knowledge. And it claimed, Gnosticism claimed a special secret knowledge. And they also claimed that the physical was evil and the spiritual was good. Now, <clears throat> let's look at uh, the first epistle of John. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So <clears throat> this uh, this heresy that Jesus was God but only seemed to be man was already incipient or latent in the church <clears throat> at the time that John wrote. But Jesus was both God and man. Uh, as to the other side of the coin, the, the thought that, that Jesus is only a man and not God, we have to wait till modern times to get your Socinians and your modernists to adhere to that. So what is the answer that the church has taught throughout the years? It is this, <clears throat> is this that Jesus has two natures in one person. He has fully the nature of God and fully the nature of man in one person. Now these two natures are not mixed together. They're not intermingled. They're absolutely distinct as natures, but they exist together in the one person of Christ. And this is the Christ <clears throat> that went to the cross and bore our sins in his own body to make atonement for our sins. And so we come to the uh, Lord's Supper, where <clears throat> it's our privilege to remember what Christ accomplished for us. Um, We read in the Gospel of Luke that he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray and thank the Lord for the bread that we're about to partake of that speaks of the body of Christ. Our Father and our God, we thank you, we praise you for what you've done for us in Christ. We thank you for your body that was broken on the tree on our behalf, we who are so unworthy, that we might have life, eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. And then we read that likewise he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Uh, Brother John, would you lead us in thanksgiving for the cup? Let's sing as our closing hymn number 231 in the black book. Death and judgment are behind us.